Welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, shedding light on yin yoga and meditation. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. My hope is that the talks and conversations in this podcast will help support your practice and or your teaching of yin yoga and meditation. Now in this episode, I welcome back Oren J. Sofer to the podcast. Earlier this year, I had a a few episodes with Oren focusing on his new book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. Since the time of those episodes, many of you have emailed me to express just how helpful Oren's book has been. Some of you have even remarked that Say What You Mean, his book, is one of the most important books you've read in the last several years. Now that's incredibly gratifying for me to hear, and probably even more gratifying for Oren. And it's as good a plug as any for those of you considering picking up a copy of Oren's book. I'll leave a link for Oren's book in the show notes, as well as a link to Oren's website, which is www.orenjsofer.com, where you'll find lots of wonderful free resources on meditation and mindful communication. In this episode, we dive into how Oren integrates his training with Peter Levine's work, which is something called somatic experiencing. This work looks at how the body and nervous system receive, process, and integrate traumatic events. A lot of what Oren describes would fit under a phrase that I use when teaching yin yoga meditation as playing one's mental edge. So just as we have the idea of playing one's physical edge in a yin posture, I always talk about how it's important to play one's mental edge as well. And I especially like Oren's description of Peter Levine's term pendulation to describe how one can go in and out of a challenging theme or topic, going in and out as and when the conditions feel supportive to do so. But before jumping into this segment of our conversation, I also want to thank all of you who've helped me in sharing episodes of the podcast. Your sharing is extremely helpful to me in this work, and I want you to know how much I value your support. Okay, now without further ado, I once again bring you Oren J. Sofer. Okay, Oren, welcome back. Thanks for coming back on the podcast today. Sure thing, man. Good to hear you again. Um, you know, in the previous episodes we've had you on, we've talked about uh, your approach to communication as sort of a weaving together of three uh, reinforcing models of understanding experience. There's the mm-hmm. model of a mindfulness practice. There's the model of nonviolent communication, which our previous episodes have gotten into. And then there's the influence of a, a practice called somatic experiencing, and that's what I wanted to dial in on today. Um, I'm relatively naive to somatic experiencing as a system, and I'm wondering if you could just start with a, a kind of a thumbnail or nutshell overview of that that practice. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so this. Uh system of somatic experiencing uh, was developed by a man named uh, Peter Levine, um, who is a psychologist uh, studying at uh, University of California in Berkeley. 
And it's uh, it's a method for healing trauma that's based in an understanding of nervous system process and nervous system regulation. And um, what what Peter discovered is very interesting. He was actually he was observing animals in the wild and trying to understand um, trauma and how it functioned. And what he observed was that, like for example, on the savanna uh, in Africa, um, animals face life threatening situations regularly. You know, an, an, an antelope or a zebra might uh, have a close call um, with with a predator, might even get attacked, but then survive, and they don't experience trauma. And so he was very interested to say, okay, here are these creatures that share so much in common with us in terms of being mammals. You know, we share a lot of the same um, uh, neural structure in terms of the mammalian brain, the, the limbic brain, uh, the... Um, reptilian brain, the the brain stem, and and just evolutionarily, uh, our wiring is based on the same uh, kind of OS, so to speak, <laughs> at a base level. And he's like, how come these animals don't experience PTSD? Um, is a very uh, in a fa- famous book, um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the author's name right now. Uh, so what Levine discovered was that in the wild, animals go through a process, a very natural process of releasing and discharging any heightened activation in their nervous system that develops through this life-threatening encounter. They will go, they'll find a safe place, uh, lie down and rest, and then allow their body to shake and twitch. And basically what's happening is the nervous system is completing the responses to the danger is known as a self self-protective response uh, to flee, to fight, to get away. And by allowing all of that energy, very powerful energy that gets stimulated in the body to protect life, the animal's nervous system is able to return to a state of balance and equilibrium. But what happens in human beings is that that natural process of healing in the nervous system gets interrupted. Um, sometimes circumstantially, for example, with abuse, uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Um, if there is repeated exposure to threats, the nervous system doesn't actually have a chance to complete. Or even with what's known as event trauma, a car accident, natural disaster, things like this, um, we we inhibit the response because of our powerful thinking brains and all of the social conditioning we have. The body starts to shake or cry, and then either we ourselves or someone else kind of interrupts the process and says, it'll be okay, it'll be okay, you know, calm down, relax, don't cry, don't cry. You know, we see adults doing this to children all the time. And um, when that uh, is a natural process. There's a difference between the kind of, um, you know, a child crying in a way that's inconsolable and actually needing to to stabilize their nervous system. There's a difference between that and sort of the natural process of being upset and moving through a cycle of discharge. So when that those cycles of completion get interrupted, it throws off the nervous system and we end up with a, a new pattern of dysregulation, which is kind of the origin of trauma. It's a dysregulation in the, in the nervous system that gets kind of uh, locked in 
in a new pattern. So somatic experiencing is a method, a system for working with the underlying causes of of uh, not only trauma, but also just other forms of disruption emotionally, psychologically that get held in the body and the tissues and the nervous system. Uh, and so th- this is this is some of the work that I, I've been trained in, and which uh, I integrate into the work that I do um, with people in communication. So that that's a little bit of an overview, right? And you know, in 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 preparing to talk to you about this, um, you know, I came across Peter Levine and saw that he's a psychotherapist. And one of the things that um, I appreciated was this idea that with these traumas or with these unresolved um, episodes of difficulty or, or dysregulation, there's often a, you know, a, a kind of a cognitive a biased approach that says, okay, we're going to talk this through, we're going to get a cognitive understanding, get a cognitive right. reappraisal of what's happening. And right. it sounds like he found that that was insufficient to actually lead to a way of discharging the experience or I wouldn't even maybe question it whether it's an integration of the experience into a way that the person can function in a, in a healthy manner going forward. Um, yeah, there, there's a few things in what you said that are that are really important, Josh. That I wanna I wanna highlight. And so one is this this term you used, insufficient. And what I like about your your word choice there is that it's not that the cognitive uh, dimension or realm is irrelevant. It's just that it's not enough. Mm. And this isn't just Peter Levine. This is the whole field of somatic therapy that recognizes we're, we're not just consciousness disembodied. We, we have a body and a nervous system and a, an emotional center and and that our experiences have impacts on our our physical structure. And so that healing um, and complete healing must include that uh, somatic level, which which is just a fancy way of saying body-based. The word soma just means body, including that bodily um, aspect of our experience. The other word that you used that I really enjoyed you bringing in is integration. And one of the other, there are many ways of defining or understanding trauma, but another angle on trauma is that trauma is unintegrated resource. And this is this is a really fascinating way of looking at trauma because if we have survived trauma, it means that we got through it, which means that there's a strength there. There's something that got us through. And what happens though is that the experience is still fragmented in the psyche. The 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 pain of it and the resource of it have not been integrated, and so this is the uh, the system of somatic experiences designed to help the person reintegrate all of the different facets of that experience, and that often includes not only the body but also the emotions and and the cognitive uh, dimension, the meaning that gets assigned to the events. There's a lot in what you just said that I want to riff on with you from a Dharma perspective, mm-hmm. but I think it's a, it might be a little too early in the conversation to jump into that that topic quite yet. Um, maybe it would be good just to lay out, I mean, or get a sense of how you how you've used this model of understanding and applied it to your approach to communication, because the, the 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 bridge there isn't totally 
um, salient to me quite yet in terms of how, do you how, what, mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. what would you do for someone in terms of like developing greater presence of communication yeah. as you outline yeah. your book yeah so um so there's a few ways that i i weave it in um and uh i think the first maybe broadest way is is so in looking at at Levine's model one of the innovations that he um, brought in addition to just this understanding of the functioning of the nervous system. Um, and there are other others in the field uh, who were kind of in parallel with him doing similar work, um, Pat Ogden, Bessel van der Kock. Um, one of the things that Levine really emphasizes is the initial conditions that are necessary for healing trauma. And this is where the the standard uh, before Levine's work and some of the other work of his his colleagues in the field did, the standard treatment for trauma was exposure therapy. So basically, if somebody has, uh, you know, um, a fear of heights, they fell down, a, you know, a shaft as a kid and they get afraid of heights, they had this traumatic experience. Well, then what you do is you just very slowly in small increments reintroduce them to that experience, building up their tolerance. The idea being that if you do it in small doses, they'll eventually get over it. Um, well, what they found is that more or less exposure therapy doesn't doesn't work consistently. And one of the reasons is that we need a certain amount of stability in the nervous system first before we can go back in to that experience. And so the initial work with somatic experiencing is actually not going into the trauma or processing it. It's actually it's actually counterintuitive. Part one of the hallmarks of trauma is that our mind gets uh and heart, our whole kind of person gets taken over by the traumatic memory in a way that we don't have control. We lose control over that. And so the first movement towards healing is a movement away from the traumatic memories and actually, number one, strengthening the capacity to disengage the attention from that traumatic uh, event and the associated emotions and memories. And number two, um, heightening the access to healthy experiences of pleasure and well-being, what sometimes just referred to as resources. So, um, so the first way that I integrate the, this model into communication is by supporting people to um, have more positive experiences relationally and with communication. It's why all of my work centers around a fundamental training principle, which is to start small. Don't start trying to change your communication with the most difficult person in your life. You know, that's like exposure therapy. It's it's going into the eye of the storm, you know, the heart of the storm and thinking that you're going to be able to work it out. You know, why not start where it's easier and build up some strength? And so this goes for both using the communication skills, but it also goes for when people, you know, one of the, the challenging aspects of teaching communication is that all of us are carrying a lot of conditioning 
we have had so many painful, difficult, unhealthy experiences throughout our lives of not being seen, of being overlooked, uh, not having our needs valued, um, feeling wounded or hurt. So to start to heal some of that, we need to actually first develop more um, wholeness and resilience and resources inside. So there's more, but let me just pause there. That's kind of the first, the first layer of the integration. Right, because in listening to you, I'm, I'm reliving past bad conversations <laughs> or arguments where something gets said and and clearly it's activating a trigger in me that then has me da- like going down a rabbit hole of, of feeling flooded by all sorts of things and, and I don't have any kind of bearing or presence to skillfully engage with my interlocutor at that point. So, um, yeah. so you're, you're, you're holding this model as, as a way to, it sounds like to both discharge the, some of the, the historical event, events or occurrences that have led to these triggers, but also possibly uh, a, a way to get a foothold into a kind of a, a safer, more pleasant, if you would, Think about it like that, a more pleasant internal experience that could give you a sense of presence to the person you're speaking with? In in part, in part. So I would say it's less about the, the pleasant side and more just the sense of stability. It's mm-hmm. that it's that capacity to actually um, find inner stability. That's the, that's the starting point before we look at the difficult experiences or discharging or integrating things like that. It's, it's, do we have a basis that we're starting from in conversation? So this is, this is the first step and, and there are various tools and skills that I teach. Some of the meditative, some of the more out of the somatic experiencing, uh, work to, to develop these, this internal basis of resilience and resource. The next, the next place that I go is um, to start to teach people how to be more aware and mindful of their nervous system. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that somatic experience is based on for the practitioner, for the for the person who's supporting the healing process, is to be able to start to read subtle cues in the person's nervous system and sense um, these what are known as cycles of activation. So the 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 human nervous system, when it's healthy and resilient, goes through natural cycles of activation and deactivation. This is, this is partly our circadian rhythm. It's um, the cycle of our energy during the day, but these cycles are happening. um, It's kind of like a fractal thing on all levels. So every time we breathe, the in-breath, the nervous system um, is aroused slightly. The sympathetic nervous system is engaged. As we exhale, there's a, a settling, a relaxing. The parasympathetic nervous system is engaged. And so these, I teach people to start to feel and sense What's it like to get activated? Activation isn't a bad thing. It's a natural thing. It can be positive or negative depending on the situation and the context. So when I say positive or negative, I don't mean good or bad. I mean it can be pleasant or unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And so as we, we start to sort of feel, oh, this is what it's like for me when the activation in my nervous system increases. 
you know, uh, my, my breath changes, uh, I feel more energized, my palms get sweaty or I feel hot or my jaw tenses if it's negative or my heart opens if it's positive. Then to also start to sense what does it feel like to settle? How does it feel to deactivate? How does it feel to relax, to have that downward phase of the cycle? And this is something that our whole culture and society skips over. We, we have lost the value <clears throat> for the exhalation, for the, um, the pause after something. And it's it's one of the reasons why there's so much frenetic energy and dysregulation in our whole society is because everything is more faster go um, d activation. It's all grab the attention, keep it through stimulation. So it's this constant increasing hits of stimulation without ever any downward resting until you collapse and yeah. go to sleep or or burn out. So helping people to start to sense and feel these natural movements of activation and deactivation. Then in a conversation, we begin to have more awareness and facility with what's happening internally, and we can start to self-regulate more. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're talking there, a question, I don't know if this question is fully formed in my head yet, but you might be able to hear what I'm asking. <laughs> it's, Given what you've learned from the somatic experiencing process, has that changed how you think about meditative exploration, like the dynamics in a meditation practice, or has it shifted how you even maybe give instructions to meditation oh, yeah. students? Because Absolutely. I, I came across um, a passage, I think it may have been, have been written by Stephen, uh, not P Stephen Peter Levine, um, where he says the emphasis in mindfulness meditation on remaining detached from discursive thought may sometimes encourage a remote, uninvolved attitude toward arising images, feelings, and insights, etc., that may impede opening up and deconditioning or discharging. Um, and so this this is a theme that I've I've been trying to consider a lot in my own practice and teaching about how certain meditative ideals can actually impede or get in the way of some of these more complicated dynamics from being resolved or, or integrated, if you will. Um, and I'd just like to hear or open it up to you to see what, what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, yeah, and no, I, would, I would agree with Levine there. Um, I think he's making a very astute point, and it's, it's something that any uh, skilled practitioner or teacher understands innately and intuitively from their own practice. Um, and I, I have had several... Uh, several teachers who um, have this understanding uh, through their own meditation experience of number one, um, the the very subtle uh, what's what's meant by this word and detachment isn't really actually a, a good translation. It's more non-attachment because um, detachment implies this disconnection, which is not actually the the goal. But uh, it's a non-attachment is actually a very deeply connected state. We are intimately um, present with the experience without becoming lost or over-involved or identified with it. And so this is it's a, it's a an experience of awareness that is is not actually that far away from any of us. It's something that we actually experience in our life naturally, but that words don't do a good job of representing. So for example, 
when um, one of the most common ways that we experience this is sometimes with in nature, when there's a sense of awe, um, there can be this, the, the experience is one of being fully present, deeply and intimately connected to what's happening. Um, but the sense of me really gets very thin, can almost disappear entirely. There's just the experience. And so that's a little bit what's, that's a little bit what's meant by this word non-attachment is that, that the attachment is the sense of controlling, wanting to control the experience or becoming overly involved with it. So it's the difference between being in that state of awe with nature and then the mind coming in and, and you know, like, I've got to bring my friends here or, oh, where's my camera? Or, oh, gosh, I hope this doesn't go away. And um, all of a sudden something inside comes in to try to capture or hold on to the experience. So how in terms of the meditation practice and, and teaching, um, I think one of the key shifts for me in in my own sort of trajectory has been um, really learning how to emphasize the um, the need for stability and resilience and resource um, over going into difficult places. It's like you don't go in unless you can come out is the basic principle. And a lot of people when they meditate try to go in right away. Right. There's a there's definitely floating around in the call it the meditation culture at large, there's there's this kind of idea that good practice is where you face whatever comes up. You just it kind of what you're describing with exposure therapy. It's just if it if it comes right. up then you have to deal with it and you have to face it head on and any shine away, any diversion diversion of your attention is um a sign that you just don't have the the, the emotional fiber or <laughs> constitutional strength to, right. to to do what needs to be done, um, and I really have appreciated the little I've looked into it. This idea of I think the phrase that they that Levine uses is pendulation to be able Correct. to swing in and out of something. That's right. Um, we, in in Yin Yog, we talk about playing your your physical edge of a posture where you you never want it to be too intense where it's causing pain, but you don't want it to be so neutral that you're not actually affecting any transformation and um it seems to be there's an analog here with the mind that uh that it's not about just staying either you know i could say either you 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 face what's coming up head on and adopt a kind of detached which or um distance position to it or you're 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 just flooded by it um and there's there's no kind of middle ground between going into something and stepping away from it for a little while mm-hmm. and going into it and stepping away and i i do like that 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 emphasis um it just it it seems like it 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 is it does give it, it's less cr- triggering in terms of um getting people feeling that they're overwhelmed or flooded yeah yeah it's it's really it's really essential, and the you know the, there are two different kind of principles that you're you're pointing to. The, the the pendulation is that ability when the conditions are right, and that's really important. It's like when we have enough stability, resilience, groundedness, clarity to go in and then come out, and then touch back in and then come out. And so there is that um, capacity and willingness to. 
uh, not need to do it all at once or figure it all out or put the pedal to the metal and and take breaks and and um when you've worked with with students, how do you how do you suggest that they they go in and out of something like that? I'm just thinking, of people who meditate, mm-hmm. they're going to sit. Some they might a, a triggering thing might come up. I think a lot of times people try to use a meditation instruction actually as a way to step away from something, like that, yeah. to, 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 you know, yeah. to to wrap it up neatly with like a label or this is just thinking, etc. And yeah. it doesn't really facilitate a broader exploration of it. How do, how do you communicate that going in and out? Um, to, to well, these students? are these are about different phases of practice, and this is this is you know if 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 one's meditating without a teacher or without the proper guidance, this is this is where we get into problems because we only get part of the instructions, and different instructions are appropriate at different phases of our practice, and so that well just just note it and go back to the breath or, you know, just let it be there. Don't get involved. That's, that's more of a initial stage because what's happening there is the, the need to develop the stability in the mind. So we, we consciously don't go into material in order to develop enough of the clarity and stability so that, and then, and then there's the second phase of actually turning towards and exploring and investigating the material that comes up. So when the conditions are appropriate internally to do that, there's enough groundedness and balance. There's the option to step out. We are not flooded or overwhelmed. Then, and this is where that analogy of the asanas that you used comes in, then there's that sense of you go in a little bit. You don't go in so much that you're, you know, uh, gritting your teeth, bearing it in pain, you know, but you go in enough that you can start to feel it, sense it, know what's going on. And then the, and then the pendulation and then, and then taking a break. So there, there, there are many different ways to, to do this. And a lot of it depends on the context in terms of what, what the material is that someone is working with. Sure. Sure. Um, if, and I'm just trying to think this through with some of the people that I've worked with. Um, you know, the way you're describing it, it sounds like you you would go into that second phase when there, there was enough internal resources that you felt you could face it. And it almost sounds like you're describing in a way that the student or the meditator would would call up the the challenging thing, which you may you may not have meant that meant it that way, but it, it sort of sounded that way, and. and it seems to me in my own practice and with others, it's, it's, you know, some of these things are just, they arrive unannounced as you, as you know, well know yourself, right. They just, <laughs> they just flash yep. up. So at that point, um, how, what would you counsel someone to, to encourage or to try to do at that point? Um, you're saying it, it shows up in a way where it's too much, where it's like overtaking someone. Yeah. They say they get flooded with anxiety or, um, Mm -hmm. some Mm -hmm. really powerful memory comes in. Yeah. So, you know, if you're, um, the, the time to, um, find your rain gear isn't when you're, um, uh, 10 miles from home in the middle of the storm, right? You want to pack your rain gear before you leave home. So, what that what that means is um, hopefully um, if anyone is doing any kind of healing work, they're working with their students to develop resilience and resource outside of the difficult stuff coming up. You know, it's like when we're caught in the storm, it's not the time to start to actually look for, okay, wait, how do I, 
you know, how do I ground? How do I orient? How do I bring in compassion? So one one part is actually training in these tools for stability and resilience as a regular part of our practice so that when something really difficult comes up and we're flooded, we have the tools available to fall back on. So that's that's a really important point. And, and then in the moment of something overwhelming or challenging coming up, um, sometimes we just we just do the best we can you know if if we don't have access to tools we don't have access to tools we put our head down and you know get through it in whatever way we can but to the degree that there's enough awareness to actually remember like oh i have some tools here or, oh i can i can actually uh shift how how i'm experiencing this then it's about seeing what's accessible. What are the internal tools that I can draw on? Do I open my eyes and look around? Do I orient to my environment to kind of bring my attention out instead of being consumed and lost in this internal storm? Um, another really useful way of doing that is just talking to another human being. So when we get flooded by something, it consumes our attention it, it captivates our attention. There's this magnetic pull inward to the emotions and the stories and the pain and the hurt. And so the balancing movement is to go in the opposite direction, to bring the attention outwards. Sometimes that, that means the body, like the hands, the feet, sound, widening, visually looking around, connecting with smell, taste, touch. So grounding in the present moment, uh, sensory experience. And other times it means talking to a friend, calling someone up, you know, that also is regulating for the nervous system. And then if we have developed other tools like loving kindness or compassion um, or various practices of grounding the attention and stabilizing in the body, we can draw on those. Mm. Yeah, that was good to hear you say all that. Um, it sort of confirms some things that I've, I've come across myself where just in the meditation itself, if someone open, were to open their eyes or turn their attention to listening to sounds or feeling the touch of their hands, that that can be a, a reference point that is, is a way to navigate that, the swing of going in and out of something. Exactly. Um, yeah. So great. Um, I know we're coming towards our time on this one, and, and you're, you're actually involved in teaching a retreat out at Spirit Rock right now, but it's been a little while since we spoke and the book has been out for a little bit. Did you have an update on how fantastically successful the book is. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, everything's relative, you know. So um, for my first book, I'm super pleased with how many people it's reached and uh, the kinds of feedback I'm getting in general. People are just really appreciative and um, getting a lot out of it, which is so gratifying for me. I, I also just found out that the book, um, the uh, Shambhala, who's the publisher, just signed a contract to have it translated into Mandarin. It's going to be available. <laughs> it will be available in Taiwan, so that's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, and, I, and then I'm still doing uh, small events here and there, appearing on podcasts like this one with you, and uh, and teaching uh, teaching around the country, um, and doing online courses, which is really fun for me to get to connect with people uh, in different parts of the world and and share these tools. So we're just finishing up the first online course based on the book uh, in a couple of weeks, and then I'll be doing another one in the fall. So, yeah, it's been great fun. That's great. And I know a few people have emailed me directly saying after one of the episodes we did earlier, they 
immediately ordered the book and have been loving it. So oh, that's great. So for people listening, uh, know that it's it's been well very well received and it's a really a great resource for. I would say inter- It's not just about communication. It's it, it's really a book about integrating uh, a, a spiritual path um, of wisdom and compassion into more areas of your life. Oh, thanks, Josh. And let's just let's just let people know that the book is called "Say What You Mean: A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication." I'm, I'm not sure if we if we actually mentioned that yet. I'll put all that in the intro and the outro. But okay, great. Listen, Oren, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you again. Absolutely, yeah, it's been great to chat, Josh. Okay, so that concludes my series with Oren. And if you missed the first two installments, you can find those with the archived episodes on my site, which is www.joshsummers.net forward slash podcast. And as I try to say towards the end of this conversation with Oren, his book is a wonderful bridge connecting what we do on the cushion to how we are with others off the cushion. And it comes highly recommended. Now, going forward in the next episode, I'll have a more personal episode where I share some updated reflections on my own attempts to better manage my relationship slash addiction to technology, as well as some introductory thoughts about a very, very important topic, trauma or the trauma that happens within spiritual communities and how spiritual communities can foster toxic group dynamics that enable abuse of various kinds. This episode will cue up a series that I'm doing with the teacher and investigative journalist Matthew Remsky as he talks about his book on abuse and cult dynamics within Ashtanga Yoga. Matthew's new book is called Practice and All is Coming, Abuse, Cult Dynamics, and Healing in Yoga and Beyond. The themes and issues that Matthew raises are relevant to any modern yoga or meditation space. And I really look forward to sharing that series of episodes with you soon. It's vital, I think it's super vital, that we all keep our eyes open, our discernment sharp, and our community safe. So stay tuned. In the meantime, if you're interested in attending a yin yoga training or silent meditation retreat with me and Terry Coburn, please check out our calendar of upcoming events. Our 2020 calendar is more or less fixed at this point, so you can hopefully better plan out the next steps in your yin education. Just check out www.yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. Thanks so much for listening today, as always, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.